So what kind of story are you in? Early in my marriage, I think it was probably in that first year even, Kelly started saying to me that we were one of the great love stories, that we were living in one of the great love stories, like Romeo and Juliet, or Noah and Allie, or uh, Kim and Kanye, or, or, or Zach and Kelly, as in Morris and Kapowski. Uh, and this has actually been so important to believe in our marriage. On the, on the times when, when things haven't gone well or uh, the times when our marriage has really been hurting or we've been in kind of a dark place, we'll, we'll look at each other and say, hey, remember, we're, we're one of the great love stories. And there's something about even just saying that that gives us hope. Or maybe not even when things are going bad or when the marriage isn't working well, maybe even just when we're in that ass stage. You know that ass stage when you're just kind of going through the motions and you're so busy and you're driving kids around and, and your, your marriage has kind of become monotonous and boring and you just are just kind of eh. And in that, in that case, it's so encouraging to look at each other and say, hey, but remember, we're in a great love story. And we really are. I mean, and I've kind of told you a little bit about our love, but I met Kelly when I was in fifth grade. And, uh, and so, and I was starting a new school. I walked into Mrs. Wilgus's fifth grade class and there she was. She had this hair that looked like curly fries. And I remember I went home and I told my mom that first day, mom, I met the girl I'm going to marry. And I've told you before also that we had our very first date. My mom took us here to the Herndon campus to watch a movie, to watch Newsies. Uh, my mom and her mom met uh, because the principal called them because we were kissing on the playground. Uh, and so, of course, we are a great love story. But like all great love stories, it isn't always great. Um, that first year actually ended pretty um, dramatically and tragically. Um, I... We, we got finished with fifth grade and I went away with my family for, the, uh, for a couple weeks in the summer to go back to Alabama to visit family and friends. And, and I think it was like three weeks, whatever it was, it felt like a long time. And I just, I just wanted to get back to Kelly because now we were in sixth grade and I thought like having a girlfriend in sixth grade, there's probably some perks that weren't there in fifth grade. And so I just like could not wait to get back to Kelly. And, and, um, and so I, I, that's what I thought about the whole time I was on vacation. Now, Kelly, now that we were in sixth grade, she started going to youth group. Um, and so uh, she got introduced to some older boys. She got to see what else was out there. And, um, and it wasn't even that she was interested in the older boys. She developed a crush on our youth pastor named Jeff. And so when I got back in town, I think the very first time I saw Kelly was at youth group. Um, and she uh, broke up with me uh, because, you know, of, of this crush. And... Um, I don't think I'm making this up. I've told this story a lot, so I, you know, it's one of those things where maybe I'm exaggerating, but I don't think so. I think the very next day, I was sitting at home. It was three o'clock, uh, um, and, and on TBS, Saved by the Bell came on, and I always watch Saved by the Bell. So three o'clock the next day, I'm watching Saved by the Bell, and it's the episode where Kelly develops a crush on her boss at the Max, an older man by the name of Jeff. 
And so I'm sitting there heartbroken and, and I'm watching as Kelly and Zach are at their homecoming and it was like a dress up homecoming because they were dressed like uh, Romeo and Juliet and they're sitting on a picnic table and Kelly is just crying and saying, I, I didn't mean for this to happen, but I have fallen in love with Jeff. And I just remember uh, just weeping uncontrollably and being devastated. And I think I spent the next week calling into 106.7 over and over again using different accents and voices requesting Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You because that's the only thing that brought me comfort. Um, but fortunately, that wasn't the end of our story. You know, and like it wasn't the end of Zach and Kelly's story either, who went on to get married in Vegas after Screech and Zach spent a short stint as male escorts. Um, But I do wonder what kind of story you come in here with. What kind of story are you living? Um, Babat Buster, uh, which is a great name. If, if uh, yeah, Anyways, that's just a funny name to me. Um, Babat Buster is a professor at um, University of Southern California, and she's also a story consultant for Pixar. And she says that there are two types of good stories. And she says one good story is one where a person faces a fear, overcomes it, and discovers the courage to become fully alive. That's interesting to me. St. Irenaeus said that the glory of God is man fully alive. And Jesus said that he came so that we would have life and life abundantly. So a good story is one where men and women are transformed into people who are fully alive, who are exactly how God intended them to be. A great example of this is the King's Speech. The King's Speech uh, won the Oscar about five years ago, I think. Uh, and it's this, it's this true story of George VI. And George VI was the was king in Britain. Um, and, uh, and he had a horrendous stutter. So he was terrified of public speaking. And so the film is all about him getting the courage to make a public address. Now, what's interesting about this story is had he become king 20 years earlier, all that would have been required of him was sitting on a horse and waving and having his picture taken. And had he become king 20 years in the future, he could have given a speech on film and they could have edited it together. But he became king at the time when live radio broadcasts were, were the thing. And so the whole movie is about him facing that fear. But really where the heart of the film is, is George VI was a pretty isolated man. And in the film, we see him develop the courage to pursue a friendship with this Australian speech therapist. And it's through that friendship, it's through that relationship that we get to watch as George VI courageously becomes a true king. So that's one type of story. The other type of story that she talks about, the other type of good story, is a story where we see a person who's faced with a choice and they make the choice to become the living dead. Now, this isn't like zombies. This isn't night of the living dead. It's, it's a person who makes a choice and they continue to live a life. But from that point on, you see that they're essentially a dead man walking. And there's no greater illustration of that than the Godfather. You've got Michael Corleone, and he is, uh, he's coming back from war at the beginning of that film. And, uh, and you know, his dad is the, the big mafia um, boss, and, and he wants nothing to do with the family business. He's got a girl. He's a decorated war hero. He wants to start over. He wants to live the American dream. But shortly into the film, he has a choice. He has this choice where he can kill these two men who had planned to assassinate his father or not. 
And there's a great scene. If you remember it, he goes into that little Italian restaurant and he's back in the bathroom where the gun is and, and there's a, the sound of the subway traffic going by. And, and, and it's so frantic. And you, you can imagine that that's what's going on inside of him. He knows that if he makes this choice, his life will be forever changed. And of course, ultimately he decides to kill the two guys. And then you see his face and you see from that moment on, he is living, he is the living dead. Now, we make these kind of choices all the time. Now, what happens in movies is they stretch out those moments, um, make them dramatic and long, but, but we make those kind of choices all the time. And those choices are affected by the type of story we think we're in. As Sam from Lord of the Rings said to Frodo, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Well, that's what I want us to look at for the next several weeks. We're gonna look at kind of the story of God, what, what I believe is the great meta-narrative for all our stories. And I know some of you might not buy that. Some of you are maybe here and you're just curious about things, and that's great. I think this is a great time to be here because you can, un, you can hear what it is that, that Christianity is inviting you into, what kind of story you're being invited into. Because if the story of God is true, it will change our stories. We have a Why Believe class that our elementary school students go through if they want to be baptized. We just recently did it. And we, we tell the kids that there's a story that's happening, this huge, colossal story. It's a, it's a story that never ends and that they can all be a part of. And that's the story of God. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to spend the next five weeks looking at it. Then we're going to have Advent. And then we're going to spend the first five weeks of the new year looking at it. Um, and I'm so excited to kind of jump in and look at the story. But before we jump into kind of the, the story itself, I'd like us to start today by looking at what happened before the beginning, before the beginning of the story, to look at the author. Now, the story of God presupposes that there's an author. Now, why does that make a difference? What's the big deal um, if we believe that there's an author or not? Well, John Paul Sartre wrote an essay shortly after World War II. It was after all of humanity really had to face that we are capable of, of just atrocious, um, uh, atrocious deeds against each other. And so he wrote this essay that became pretty popular called Existentialism is a Humanism. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what, what he writes about in that essay. He, he uses a paper knife, a, a, a knife that was designed to cut paper, as an example of, of the difference between believing that there's a God who made you and believing that you weren't created by a God. In, in other words, by having an author or not having an author. And this is what he says. He says, if one considers an article of manufacture as, for example, a paper knife, one sees that it has been made by a designer to serve a definite purpose. No one would produce a paper knife without knowing what it is for. If God created man, each human being is the realization of a certain divine conception and purpose. Here then is the problem. The atheism of the 19th century abolished God. And yet it still insisted there was such a thing as human nature that there were some things that we must do because they're good for human beings to do. Atheistic existentialism, of which I am a representative, and I'm still quoting, that's not me. Um, atheism, atheistic existentialism declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, we have to face the consequence of this. For we are not made for a purpose like a paper knife. And therefore, nowhere is it written that human beings must be honest 
that we must not lie because we are now on a plane where there are only human beings and no God. If there is no God, everything is permitted. And he goes on to say that a, a paper knife can only be considered good or bad based on what it was designed for. So if a paper knife cuts paper, it's good. But if you take a paper knife and try to carve marble, it's going against its design. He says, if human beings were made by God, then there are certain things that we were designed to do, that we were designed with a purpose. But if God did not make us, we are not here for a purpose and there's absolutely no way of talking about good or bad, right or wrong. And this, he says, we must all bravely face. And he says, once you've bravely faced this, then you can be free. But to me, he makes just the opposite point. To be the realization of a certain divine conception and purpose to me is freeing. I know that I was designed to do this. I know how I feel when I'm living out what God has designed me to do. If you look at a hawk, if you look at a hawk soaring, you know that that hawk was designed to do that. It, it, you, you look up and you're just amazed at how free and beautiful that is. But if you make a hawk walk around on its two feet, it's gonna be awkward and clumsy. It might even be deadly to the hawk. So if we believe we have an author, we believe we have a purpose, that we are the realization of a divine conception and purpose. Dan Allender in his book, To Be Told, which if you're, in a, if you're in a connect group and you're looking for something to go through together and you wanna kind of go to like a regroup level, I recommend you do To Be Told as your group. And there's a workbook that goes along with it. And I mean, you'll, I mean, you'll get deep in the group quickly with this book. But Dan Allender in his book, this is what he says of us. He says, we are a well-written intentional story that is authored by the greatest writer of all time and even before time and after time. The weight of those words, if you believe them, even for a brief snippet of time, can change the trajectory of your life. The weight of those words, even if you believe them for just a moment, can change the trajectory of your life. In one of those moments, like, like in this King's speech or in the Godfather, if in that moment you believe that you are a well-written, intentional story authored by the greatest writer of all time, even before time and after time, that will change the way you make that choice. And I, I feel compelled to say to my brothers and sisters in 33rd, I know there are a lot of people that have probably told you um, that your story's just a mess and that you've screwed it up. But I want you to know that I believe and we as a church family believe that you are a well-written, intentional story authored by the greatest writer of all time. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that you're a well-written, intentional story? So in the story of God, we have an author. It's always helpful, though, to know a little bit about an author. As we get to know an author, we can begin to make sense of the story that the author is telling. Uh, one of my favorite movies is Finding Neverland. And I know you're probably thinking, how many favorite movies does this guy have? Well, I have one for every sermon I give. And this is uh, today's uh, favorite sermon, Finding Neverland. Because in it, you see the backstory, the, the behind the scenes of Peter Pan. It's a, it's a movie that, that shows us a little bit of the life of J.M. Barry. 
And if you remember the film, it really focuses on his relationship with these four boys, these four boys who have lost their father and whose mother is dying. And so as you're watching the film, all of a sudden it makes sense. Peter Pan makes a lot of sense to you. You begin to understand why J.M. Barry would write a story about this land, this neverland where, where there's adventure and there's fairies and there's joy and there's hope and it never ends. And also in the film, uh, J.M. Barry talks a little bit about his childhood. And I know a little bit about him because I wrote a paper on him in college because I'm a Disney freak and, you know, Peter Pan and all that. So uh, in his childhood, J.M. Barry, when he was six years old, his brother, who was almost 14, died in a tragic accident. And it really messed his mom up. His mom couldn't get out of bed. She, she kind of really lost the will to live. And so as a six-year-old boy, James would often put on his brother's clothes. And his brother had a particular way of whistling. And he would whistle, trying, trying to mimic his older brother, just so that he could see some joy on his mom's face. So then all of a sudden, it makes sense why he would write a story about a boy who never grows up, who never ages past 13. So knowing an author shapes how we view the story. So what is the author of the story of God like? Well, he's relational. At his core is community. And we see that in these first few verses of the Bible. In verse one, it says, in the beginning, God. And then in verse two, it says, and the spirit of God was hovering. And this word for hovering evokes a picture of a mother bird fluttering over her young. It's a very warm and intimate image. So you've got God the Father, and then you've got the Spirit of God creating the world through the Word. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He doesn't, he doesn't just make light. He speaks light into existence. And part of the reason we read John 1 in, in connection to Genesis 1 is to show us just exactly what was happening there. John 1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Everything that was made was made through the Word. And then John reveals to us that the Word was Jesus, that all of creation, everything that has ever existed came through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. So right there, before the beginning, before the story even begins, we have a God who is relational, who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so why does that matter? Why, why does that even matter? Why, how does that affect the stories that we find ourselves in? Well, if there was a singular God, if there was one God who created the world to display, he would, he would be creating the world to display his power. So at the root of everything would be power. The ultimate reality would be power. But because God has always existed as one, per, as one God in three persons, because he's always been in this mutual self-love, self-sacrificing uh, relationship, because he's always been connected, that means at the very center of reality, at the very root of the universe is love. That when God created the universe, he didn't create it simply to display his power, but it was out of an abundance and overflow of love. So that means at the, at the core, at the, at the root of every story is love. So how does that play out for us practically? Well, um, one way that I, that I see often is we live in a society where jobs are structured in such a way that, that achievement and career advancement 
and, and achieving greater power is the ultimate. And, and now work is very important, and we're going to actually look at that some next week, at, at what work should be. But in our society, we, we've, we've elevated it to such a place that oftentimes it makes it really hard for us to maintain relationships. And I know some of you feel that tension. Some of you struggle with, with, with work being so all-consuming, with, with the need to achieve and get ahead. It's so, um, it's, the pressure is so great that you have a hard time even keeping up with your friends. Maybe even you have a hard time keeping up with your marriage and your kids. Now, if there's no God, then the reason you and I are here is through violence and power. The, the, the strong eating the weak, the survival of the fittest, at, at, at the core of humanity is power. But if the story of God is true, and it is, if a triune God created the universe, then for you to continue to put career advancement over community, over loving relationships, over your marriage and your family is going against your design. You weren't built for that life. Eventually, that way of life will kill you. Making the choice of career advancement over relationships is choosing to become the living dead. Because at your core, your story is about love and relationship because that is who at the core your author is. So if our author is relational, if he at his core is love, it means that at the core of every one of our stories is love. Now this also means if we find ourselves in pain, if we find ourselves in darkness, if we find ourselves in suffering, if love is the author of our story, that can't be the end of it. I love the song that we just heard sung. I love uh, the song Show the Way by David Wilcox because in it, he, he paints this life as a play. And he says, you know, if someone were to write a play in which you want to show what love is, if you want to show how much greater love is than hate, then you're going to arrange the stage so that it looks like it's not going well. It looks like the hero's not going to make it in time. But then listen to these lyrics. In this scene set in shadows, like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. Wherever you find yourself today, Love wrote your play. If life is hard, if, if someone's left you, if someone's walked out, if, if, if you've got a prodigal child, if, if you're in pain right now, you need to know that love wrote the play. I just um, recently, I had to do a funeral for a dad. And, uh, and listen, I, you can't do funerals if you don't believe that love wrote the play got an uncle that I'm probably gonna have to do a funeral for in the next week or so. If I don't believe that love wrote the play, I can't do that. In, a, in the Why Believe class, uh, Darling and I, Darling who's over our BCL ministry and she's awesome, we do a little skit for the kids and, and when we get to the part about sin, 
when we get to the part about our own sin and, and how that has caused pain and suffering in the world, Darling gets so overwhelmed by it and she tries to leave. She tries to run off. And, and I have to stop her and I say, Darling, darling, wait, 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 wait. Don't run off. Remember, we talked about that there's this big story going on. She's like, yes. And I'm like, well, what did we say was the most important thing to remember about the story? And she repeats how we start the class. She says, well, that God is love. And then I say, darling, well, if God is love, then your sin cannot be the end of this story. So the story of God has this author who at his core is relational, who at his core is love. But what does this author like to do? Well, I think we see in the creation account, we see a God who loves to take chaos and bring order. He loves to enter into darkness with light. It says in that second verse, now the earth was formless and empty. So there was kind of this shapeless chaos. And then it says, and then the darkness was over the face of the deep. And in ancient times, especially in, in ancient Hebrew culture, um, if you go back and read the Psalms, you'll see this imagery come up a lot. Anytime that it talks about the deep or it talks about water or the ocean, that is a metaphor. That is a symbol for just chaos, for feeling out of control. And so right here at the very beginning of the Bible, at the very beginning of the story, we have a God who takes that unmade chaos, that uncreated chaos and brings order to it. There's this primordial chaos and darkness that when God speaks, when it comes under the authority of God's word, it creates order and beauty. So if today, if you find yourself in a place where you are experiencing chaos and darkness, my encouragement to you is go and read, read God's word. Are you putting yourself under the authority of God's word? Because when you do that, whether you are bringing about the chaos because of your own sin or because of the sin done against you, when you put yourself under God's word, there is order and light and beauty. When I was um, in high school, I went to a Christian high school, I had a Bible teacher that I just loved. His name was David Cullen. I think I've talked about him with y'all before. And uh, he, um, he was in seminary, so a lot of times he would teach us what he was learning in seminary. So as like a 15-year-old, I was getting a seminary education, and he was taking this one class on the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. And in this class, they were talking about all the different theories about how those books got together and, and how important it is to, to know who the author of a particular book of the Bible is and, and to know... What, were, what was the context or what was, what was the audience that was being written to originally? And, and so in this one class, um, he, was, he was learning, he was, he was learning, uh, this one professor said, all right, I, I want to propose that Genesis was written by Moses and he was, it was written by Moses uh, during the time that the Israelites were in the wilderness. So they've been freed from Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They've been freed. And now they're in the wilderness waiting to go into the promised land. And during that time, if, if, you, if you know that story, you know that they began grumbling. They began saying it was so much better for us in Egypt. We want to go back to Egypt. Um, they were, you just kind of thought God's plan wasn't working out. And so uh, this professor uh, taught Mr. Cullen and then Mr. Cullen taught us um, that in Genesis, what you see in there is that God is teaching his people He's writing his readers and he's telling them that leaving Egypt and possessing Canaan was God's design for Israel. And my, my teacher would always do this. He would go, leave Egypt, 
enter Canaan. And, and that's the reason I still remember it 20 years later because of this motion. And he had really big biceps. And so I think he also likes showing off. Um, and so, so he said, all right, so, so when Moses is writing Genesis, when he's writing, especially the creation account, he, he's, he's showing us that God takes chaos and disorder and orders it. And so however God designs something, that is the best way for you. And if you think about what the Israelites had witnessed in Egypt, it begins to make a little bit of sense. I always wondered why Pharaoh's heart was so hard. Remember when, when God started sending the plagues and, and Pharaoh would not let his people go, would not let God's people go. And, and over and over again, you think, come on, man, like get a clue, like let him go. You're, you're destroying your people and your land. Like just, and you think, why was his heart so hard? But if you go back and you really look at the plagues, all of a sudden it makes a little bit more sense because they're all pretty natural. So it starts off with, with God um, uh, turning the Nile into blood or everything in the Nile dying. And so it's kind of this, this awful, murky, gross water, which, which, which would do what? Would drive the frogs out, drive the frogs out onto land and into people's homes. And so now all of a sudden you have this infestation of frogs. Well, then the frogs die. And so you've got all these frog carcasses everywhere. So now you have gnats and there's this infestation of gnats. And then the gnats lead to an epidemic in which the cattle begin to die. And as the cattle begin to die, ultimately it leads to people dying. See, it could all happen pretty naturally. So it makes sense that Pharaoh would continue to have a hard heart because it just seems like nature is falling apart. And sometimes nature does fall apart. But I think what God was showing the Israelites, what Moses was trying to convince the Israelites and what he's showing us is that sin unleashes the forces of chaos and darkness because sin violates the very fabric of our being. It unravels, it undoes what God has created. Sin undoes what God has ordered. And so those plagues in Exodus, what you're really seeing is you're seeing the unraveling of Genesis one. The second to last plague, it says there was darkness over the face of the land. It's almost as if creation has been uncreated. The sin of the people had destroyed creation. And Moses is talking to people and he's saying, do you not remember that? Do you not remember that in, in Egypt there was chaos? Do you not realize that this, the sin had unleashed forces of chaos? So leave Egypt, enter Canaan. That what God has ordered, God's design is better for you. When we sin, and not just blatantly, when we live with anything but love and relationship at the core of our story, the forces of chaos and darkness are unleashed because it goes against our design. It goes against what we were created for. And so we have the story of God. We have this story where there's an author, an author who, who has a well-written intentional story for each of our lives. And at the core of all of our stories is relationship and love because that's at the core of who he is. And he's an author who loves to move into the darkness with light. He's an author who loves to take chaos, take chaos and, and, and create order. But then he's also an author who enters the story. He doesn't just sit back and, and see what a mess we're making. He doesn't just let the natural consequences of our sin win. No, instead he says, 
like he's always done since the beginning of the story. I'm going to move into the story. I'm going to move into the chaos and I'm going to create order. But the way he did it was so surprising and so shocking. We're told in the gospel of Matthew that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land when Jesus hung on the cross. Why? What was happening there? Well, I think Jesus came so that he could be unmade so that we can be remade. He was allowed, the author of the story, the one who spoke all of creation into existence said, hey, I will come and I will let myself be ripped apart so that they can be made whole. We have an author who wants to make sure that when we look at him, no matter where we find ourselves, that we know that love wrote the play. That at the core of our existence, that at the core of every story is love. Like the Jesus Storybook Bible tells us, the story of God is about a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The story of God is the true great love story. And it's a story that we're all invited to be a part of. And like Dan Allender said, if we believe that story, if we believe that we are all a well-written, intentional story by a God who is love, just that belief could change the trajectory of our life. So when we get caught in a moment where we have a choice to make, where we have to face a fear, we can courageously move towards being people who are fully alive and not the living dead. So what story are you living? What story are you in? And over the next few weeks, we're gonna keep looking at this story. And my hope is that as a community, we will become people who really believe that the story is all about love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that as an author, uh, you are so good and kind. That no matter where we find ourselves in the story, we can look at your character and who you are and know that it is all out of love even when it doesn't make sense, even when we can't say those words, Father, I thank you that that's true. And Father, I thank you that you are a God who does not just stand at a distance, but you enter into the story. And that by entering into the story, you have forever declared to us that we are loved. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.